Good morning. It's great to see you this morning, and I pray that you had a nice Christmas. And if I haven't met you yet, I'm Will Davis. I serve as the campus pastor at our Stono campus, and I'm here at the 410 campus a couple of times a year, and so it's always a blessing for me to see new faces and to be with old friends as well. Uh, You all are very dear to me. And I always appreciate this opportunity at the end of the year to reflect and remember what God has done in our lives this past year and to look forward with great anticipation for all that this next year may hold, Lord willing. And some here this morning might be thinking, I can't wait for this year to end because as you look back on this year, it's a year marked with pain and heartache, maybe from the pain of a divorce or marital difficulties or health struggles. Perhaps you've experienced the loss of a loved one, an unexpected diagnosis ongoing treatments that have you feeling wearied and burdened. But for others, this year holds some of the greatest memories of your life. Perhaps the birth of a child or a grandchild. You may have experienced the excitement of getting engaged or getting married, a new job or graduation. Perhaps new friendships that have enriched your life in a significant way. It's important to reflect and to thank God for his faithfulness as we come to the end of the year. In our passage today from God's word, the Apostle Paul comes to the end as well. But for him, it's the end of his life as he awaits execution in a Roman prison. But Christianity's greatest defender writes one more letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, exhorting this young minister to stand firm in the face of suffering. And because of this context, 2 Timothy is a very personal letter, as you would expect of a final letter to a close friend. So have that picture in your mind as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. 
Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Let's pray. Father, would you, through your inspired word and according to 2 Timothy 3.16, teach us, reprove us if necessary, correct us and train us in your righteousness. Minister to us, Lord, through your spirit. Speak to us and encourage us in whatever we are facing today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have that popular expression in our culture, famous last words. Listen to some famous last words. Winston Churchill's final words were, I am so bored with it all. As Harriet Tubman lay dying in 1913, she gathered all of her family around her and they sang together and her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Todd Beamer, one of the passengers on United Flight 93, just before he and a group of others attempted to storm the cockpit and stop the hijackers on September 11th, 2001, said, are you guys ready? Let's roll. D.L. Moody was said to have turned to his sons who were at his bedside and said, if God be your partner, make your plans large. Stephen The first martyr of the Christian faith said in Acts 7, verse 60, as the rocks were raining down upon him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The author of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, who died at the age of 38, said, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. John Knox uttered these final words. Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. We don't know the final words spoken by the Apostle Paul, but we do see his final written words here in 2 Timothy. And in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, we see those first words of the chapter, you therefore, and therefore point us back to chapter 1, where Paul speaks of his suffering as a prisoner of the gospel. Paul was in chains not because he was a believer. He was in chains because he couldn't stop teaching and preaching the resurrection of Christ. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. A point that he will make here in this chapter In verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he makes that same plea again at the end of this letter in chapter 4, verse 5, endure hardship. Therefore, Timothy, since suffering is a part of the Christian life, keep on. Don't give up, Timothy. Keep on being strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The spiritual strength of the believer is not found within ourselves, but it's in the grace of Christ. 
We see this in Ephesians 6.10 as well. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Grace is not only the means of our salvation, but God's enabling power that strengthens us. Paul exhorts Timothy to be strong so that Timothy would then faithfully pass on the good news of the gospel to others. Verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Jesus said in the Great Commission just before his ascension into heaven in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And verse 2 of Second Timothy 2 here, this is Paul's version of the Great Commission. These things I have taught you in regards to the gospel, now you entrust it to others. What a wonderful privilege we have to be entrusted with the truth of the gospel, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us and his glorious resurrection to give us eternal life. And we are to hold firm in these truths, but we're not just to hold on to them, but disseminate them and preach them and teach them and share these glorious truths with others. And Paul reminds Timothy that it's a calling that comes at a great price. There will be suffering. The life of a believer is not easy, as many of you well know. There will be hardship, as Jesus himself promised. But Paul, starting in verse 3, introduces us to three people that we can learn from when facing trials. Three examples that I pray will spur us on in whatever we are facing today. First, we see the discipline of the soldier. Second, the dedication of the athlete. And then third, the diligence of the farmer. First, the discipline of the soldier. This would have been an illustration that the Romans would have understood. A soldier is single-minded in his focus and discipline. And not just a, a mental or a physical discipline, but a, a mental fortitude and grit in the face of trials. Verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. The Greek word here for entangled means to weave, to become so involved and so entrenched that we are one and the same with that pursuit. Paul urges Timothy to not let anything distract him from pleasing and following Christ. For believers, this is not a call to pull away from the world or the secular. No, we are to live the integrated life with no divide between the secular and the sacred. Pastor Tim Keller writes that the proper cultural strategy is faithful presence within, not pulling away from the culture, 
and not trying to take it over either. Faithful presence within means being faithful right where we are. It means we're not going to assimilate, but we are going to be distinctively Christian in the world. It's about an attitude of service, being uncompromising in our beliefs, but not withdrawing and not trying to dominate either. We must not disengage from the world, but we should guard against entangling ourselves in pursuits that pull us away from the priorities of God. The great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon warned his congregation in London against an invention that he felt might distract them from godly pursuits. And the invention was this new thing called the bicycle. Anybody here get a bicycle for Christmas? Okay, a couple of people. Right. Spurgeon felt the bicycle would allow people to get where they wanted to go so much quicker and thus give them more time for idleness. And he feared that more free time might pull them away from spiritual pursuits. And before we think, you know, that's such a grumpy, you know, fuddy-duddy thing to say, let's consider our own context. In our day-to-day, in your life, what might be pulling you away from spiritual pursuits? In what we might refer to as this age of distraction, what keeps you from the things of God? Whether it's our phones or our social media or some other interests, what are we doing with these 16 or so waking hours of each day? Am I spending more hours in pursuit of a screen or in pursuit of a holy, loving God? I remember Howard Hendricks, the great Dallas Seminary professor who's now with the Lord, telling a story once about a group of students who had come up to him after class. And while waiting to speak to Hendrix, they were all talking about some TV show that was really popular at the time, and, and then discussion moved to a, a new movie that everyone wanted to see. And then the students approached Prof. Hendrix and asked, Prof, how do you do what you do? How do you spend so much time in God's Word and memorizing Scripture and powerfully teaching and preaching the Word of God? And Prof, who had overheard their earlier conversation, said, as, as only he could say, I am able to do what I do because I don't do what you do. And that's not a guilt trip for us to flee all things of entertainment. But it's a challenge for me to consider entertainment and other pursuits that are of redemptive value and that which doesn't hinder me or distract me from my calling and our calling as followers of Christ and ministers of the gospel. But more than a focus here on what we are not to be entangled in, it seems the emphasis here is more on what we are to be pursuing. Like the soldier, Paul calls Timothy to a single-minded desire to please and prioritize God 
above all else. As we serve and live for an audience of one, the Lord Jesus, who called us and enlisted us for service. San Antonio is appropriately known as Military City USA because of the significant presence that our military has in our city. And we thank God for all of the men and women stationed here at places like Fort Sam Houston, Lackland Air Force Base, Randolph Air Force Base, Camp Bullis, Brooks Army Medical Center, and elsewhere. And perhaps some are even listening to this online as as they serve overseas or in another state. We want to express our thanks to all of you for your service, to all of our veterans, to all of our men and women in uniform. You inspire us. You stir within us a profound sense of gratitude. And we also recognize that your life, the life of your spouse and your family, can be a life of struggle at times. As you are deployed and separated from loved ones and stationed all over the world in faraway places that are not home. You are forced to say no to some things of civilian life in service to your country. The soldier is a great metaphor for the Christian life. As Christian soldiers, we have a commander and a cause and a country that we are loyal to while here on foreign soil. We are first loyal to our home in heaven. A soldier has weapons. We have the word of God in prayer. And we have been enlisted to teach and preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2, and then entrust it to faithful men and women. A soldier has obstacles and an enemy and a mission to carry out. And we do as well. Our mission is the Great Commission to share the gospel and point others to faith in Christ. When Pearl Harbor was attacked uh, almost 80 years ago this month, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, as President Franklin Roosevelt said at that time. But before FDR said those words, what first came over the radio was a report for all soldiers to return to their bases. All leaves are at this moment canceled. Pearl Harbor has been bombed. We are at war. All civilian activity is to cease. There had been issued a higher calling. And I love the story of a hero who emerged from a place of anonymity that day. A man by the name of Dory Miller from Waco, Texas. Dory was portrayed by the actor Cuba Gooding Jr. in the movie Pearl Harbor that came out in 2001. Dory Miller was an enlisted man stationed aboard the battleship USS West Virginia. Miller had never been instructed in firearms, and he was below deck getting ready to start some laundry that Sunday morning when at 7.55 a.m. on December 7th, he heard explosions and gunfire and someone yelled, 
the Japanese are attacking us. Dory left his post and began carrying injured men to safety. He then went topside and saw that the West Virginia was burning from six or seven torpedoes and from the bombs that had been dropped on it. Miller later said, without knowing how I did it, it must have been God's strength and my mother's blessing. I ran up and started to fire the big guns. Without hesitation, Dory Miller positioned himself behind a big 50 caliber anti-aircraft gun and heroically took down four to five Japanese planes. He was later awarded the Navy Cross for bravery and then posthumously the Congressional Medal of Honor. Here was a man ready to answer the call when his country needed him the most. He didn't think, sure, bombs are exploding all around me, but that's not my job. I'm not a gunner. What a gift it was to hear from Miguel and Alaria. Uh, Miguel has been a, a dear friend of mine for the last 25 years, and I really look up to you all and uh, your sacrifice, your service uh, for the Lord. And sometimes we think, I'm not a professional missionary. I'm not a pastor or evangelist or, or counselor. Leave it to someone else to go, to preach, to tell, to listen, to minister to the person in need. But if God calls you, he will equip you. You step out in faith. You may not be a vocational pastor or missionaries, but if you are a follower of Christ, then you are a minister of the gospel. You just need to be ready and walking in obedience to Christ. We must keep that state of spiritual readiness at all times, as Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 2, to be ready in season and out of season. We see it as well in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We have all been issued a higher calling if we are in Christ. And that is what should compel us each and every day as we aim to engage the world with the gospel and please Christ first, our commanding officer. Second, we see the dedication of the athlete. This is an illustration that the Greeks would have understood. Verse 5, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. In the ancient games, athletes could only compete for the laurel wreath if they had gone through the required discipline and training. They had to swear that they had devoted at least 10 months of their lives leading up to the games in regimented training and diet and putting aside all other obligations. My older brother, Josh Davis, competed in two Olympics as a swimmer, and he's here with his wife 
and my nieces and, and nephews. And Josh won three gold medals and two silver medals. And he is now the coach at Oklahoma Christian University. And his swim team is here. Can we welcome the Eagles? Okay. Josh once calculated the miles that he swam leading up to the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. And he figured out that he swam 25,000 miles of training in the pool. That would be like swimming close to one lap around the globe. One lap around the globe in preparation for a race that would last about one minute and 47 seconds. But that training... And that pain of pushing your body to those limits was necessary. There are no shortcuts to having that metal placed around your neck. But as great as that feeling was, or as great as it was to wear the victor's crown, which for the ancient games was a perishable wreath, these things are nothing compared to the prize that we should long for in heaven. The crown received in glory will be an imperishable crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8, a crown that we will then promptly cast at the feet of Jesus in worship. I remember my mom and dad were, were interviewed in studio on one of the local news stations uh, here in, in San Antonio after returning from the Olympics in 1996. And the sportscaster asked my dad on live TV, did Josh get this gift of swimming fast from you? And my dad, who's always very quick with the joke, said, no, not so much. I was always more of a flotation device. (laughs) But it's interesting that here, In verse 5, the focus is not on the speed. The focus is not on the strength of the athlete, but rather his integrity, which was passed down to us by our Father. The discipline of going about things the right way, that's more important. For those of us who want to mature as followers of Christ, there aren't shortcuts. It's a life of daily dying to self, a life of righteous motives, godly affections, seeking more of Christ through prayer and his word. It's a life of service and obedience to his will. And Paul tells us in the next chapter in verse 12 that a life of holiness will also include hardship. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will suffer. We will experience loss. We will have to walk through the refiner's fire in order to purify us in this process of sanctification as we are made more and more into the image of Christ. And this is not something we should run from, but rejoice in, as the apostles did in Acts 5.41, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame 
for his name. And then third, we see the diligence of the farmer, an illustration that the Jews would have understood. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Soldiers are recognized, uh, though not nearly enough. Athletes are praised, but farmers can be largely forgotten because of the thankless jobs that they perform for our benefit. The farmer toils and he sweats in order to be the first to reap the rewards of the harvest. And there are no quick results. We can easily take for granted the patience and the waiting that went into the work of the farmer. Do you ever go into H-E-B and just walk through the produce aisles with your arms stretched out and say, thank you, God, for the farmer who gave us this perfect plum. Thank you for the farmers who gave us this amazing avocado and the guacamole to come. It's easy to lose sight of all of the work and the toil that the farmers went through when we can shop with ease 10 minutes from home or with a few taps on the phone and have it delivered to our house. My father-in-law, Dr. Kennedy, is one of the hardest working men I have ever known. He is a rancher, farmer, a vet. He's a patient man of quiet strength and great faith. And during planting season, he works and cultivates from dawn to dusk with nothing immediate to show for his work as he waits and hopes for the crops to come in someday. Likewise, much of the life of a believer is a life of waiting. We are waiting on God to answer, to heal, to come through for us, to restore, to bring about the harvest of spiritual fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. It's hard to wait, but the waiting and the working holds for us the promise of blessing and rewards, whether seen in this life or in the one to come. Paul then calls on Timothy in these final verses to do two things. Reflect and remember. Two things that we should do as well as we come to the end of a decade. Verse 7, reflect or consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Paul is confident that our time in God's word coupled with God's empowering spirit, will give us understanding. And then remember, remember the gospel. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. We see both his humanity and his deity in this verse. Jesus was born into the world in the messianic line of David, what we just celebrated on Christmas. 
And he lived a sinless life. And then he died on the cross for our sins in our place. He was buried, but God raised him from the dead in order to give us life in him if we simply trust in him by faith. According to my gospel, Paul writes, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned or chained. Paul's suffering did not hinder the spread of the gospel. When we struggle, when we suffer, when we face the ups and downs of life in this next year to come, look to the discipline of the soldier as we put our orders from Christ above all else. Like the devotion of the athlete, let's dedicate ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer, perhaps this year like never before. And then let's be diligent and patient like the farmer as we wait on God in the midst of our struggles. Reflect and remember. And then consider these questions. How do I want my life to be remembered? What would I want my final words to be? As Christ hung on that cross for you and for me, his final words were, it is finished. Three of the most profound words in human history. The Greek word there is tetelestai, which means paid in full. Sin had been paid in full by his life. And I can't think of a better way to bring in a new year, a new decade, than to say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I transfer my trust to you. Thank you for dying in my place. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the grave to give me abundant life in you and the promise of the victor's crown of eternal life in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as Paul came to the end of his life, he could say with confidence, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Lord, despite whatever we face in this next year, would we strive to please you first, the one who called us, the one who enlisted us. Give us the strength and discipline of the athlete as we pursue you. And help us to wait on you with patience and with faithfulness. 
And when we come to the end of our lives, may we, along with Jim Elliott, the great missionary martyred for his faith, say, when it comes to die, make sure that all we have to do is die. Because we have placed our faith in you alone, Lord Jesus. Our hope is in you and the glory to come. Bless these dear people, my dear friends, in 2020. As we seek to worship you together. To serve our city together. To serve all the nations. And take the gospel to all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.